0: Hi, this is Phoenix Spot Atlantic series, a podcast series initiated by Phoenix Politic. I am Mehmet Yegin, and today we will talk about Turkey's reaction to NATO accession talks with Sweden and Finland. We have an expert guest, Dr. Paul Levine, founding director of the Stockholm University Institute for Turkish Studies. Dr. Levin published extensively on Turkey and Turkish foreign policy. His latest co authored article at the Journal of Southeast European and Lexi Studies with the title of Social Coexistence and Violence During Turkey's Authoritarian Transition, as published uh, recently. So, uh, Paul, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Paul, first I, I will ask you to put this development into context so Turkey declared its objection to Sweden and Finland's NATO bed. And this happened after uh, Ankara took steps that were imper- interpreted as steps to rebuild trust with the West. Turkey decreased uh, tension in the East Mediterranean and opened a new page with Israel, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. So is this move an exception or a harbinger of a new negative turn in Turkey's with, relation with the West before the elections?
1: Well, that is an excellent question. And, and I mean, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right uh, to say that there has been this longer, I mean, trend over the past year, maybe, of uh, Turkey trying to make up with, with old enemies in the Gulf and beyond and has been sort of on a diplomatic charm offensive. Um, uh, But it's also the case that there is a longer-term trajectory of a kind of unpredictable foreign policy where you have incidents and and periods of uh, sharp antagonism and conflict, even with traditional allies, followed then by attempts to smooth things over and make up. So, I mean, in that sense, it's sort of part of a longer term trend that has to do with, I think, the fact that the current uh, government in Ankara, uh, you know, it it has a a worldview uh, that does not place Turkey firmly uh, in a family, if you will, of uh, Euro-Atlantic democracies, Western uh, democracies, uh, but sees Rather, a world characterized by multipolarity uh, where uh, you don 't have American leadership, but you have a number of separate n- poles, if you will uh, russia china the eu u s and actors like India and turkey uh, there and I think then NATO membership and sort of you know the EU application is one part of a multi dimensional Turkish foreign policy. Uh, but it's sort of not the cornerstone. NATO membership is no longer the cornerstone that it, uh, you know, has been during throughout the Cold War. And even if you, I mean, in in, in the recent period, Turkey's uh, response to the Russian uh, re-invasion of Ukraine uh, <clears throat> sort of has given some indications that well, maybe this charm offensive has certain limits, right? Turkey has played an awkward. Uh, balancing act uh, in how it's responded by criticizing Russia, uh, providing arms, uh, in particular, Bayraktar drones to the Ukraine, but also uh, refraining from uh, participating in European sanctions against Russia, allowing uh, Russian oligarchs to, to, uh, you know, take refuge in in Turkey and so on. So in that sense... uh, this kind of uh, obstructionism, if I, if I, you know, to put it rather bluntly, um, was perhaps not entirely unexpected. Um, and as for your the, the point about you know upcoming elections, I do predict a period of rather significant potential instability that has to do with the simple fact that Erdogan looks to be losing in the polls, uh, looks to be heading towards a possible electoral defeat, whether it's now, uh, you know, next year in June or an early election, as many speculate this fall, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, he cannot afford to hand over power. There's too much at stake for him. So we can expect, I think, a turbulent period in which, uh, you know, confrontational foreign policy decisions uh, may play an important role.
0: Paul, what do you think about Turkey's preconditions for membership? There are references to support for terrorism and sales of some arms to Turkey?
1: Yeah. I mean, here is where a lot of very insightful and knowledgeable uh, Turkey experts and Turkish experts differ. Um, I mean, is this about what Erdogan and Ankara says that it's about, namely a, a dissatisfaction with how Sweden deals with the PKK and the YPG, PYD, SDF, you know, choose your, your acronym, in the, the Kurdish-led militias in northeast Syria, uh, and these these weapons of Argos, or is it about something else that Turkey wants uh, from perhaps the United States? now? My personal sense uh, is that uh, you know this is a big issue for for uh, the sort of not just Erdogan but for the sort of national security establishment in Turkey and for many Turks, um, this has been a concern not just when it comes to Sweden but other e, uh, NATO member states, right? The e, the U.S. Uh, military cooperation with uh, the Syrian uh, Kurdish-led militias and the SDF has been a bone of contention for quite some time, uh, and Turkey has tried to, you know, kind of play the obstructionist card to get other NATO member states to to accept its perspective or to hear its view on this. Uh, uh, before, remember, in 2019, uh, Turkey tried to put the brakes on certain plans to strengthen security and defense uh, in the Baltics and Poland. Uh, they ended up uh, ultimately uh, acquiescing, agreeing to, to this, uh, but in return they got some something else. Um, so I think, I mean, Turkey's complaints are reasonable in some respects. Uh, you know, from the Turkish perspective, uh, the PYD is uh, and the YPG they are uh, closely linked to the PKK, and uh, Turkey considers them a, a, a national security threat. From the Swedish perspective, much like from the US perspective, the PYD YPG are seen as allies in the the, the struggle against ISIS. And uh, we don't, and Sweden does not view them as a terrorist organization. So there's quite some, some uh, gap uh, between perceptions in Ankara and Stockholm here.
0: Paul, my next question will be about Turkey's way of diplomacy and negotiations, because Turkey chose to, to make public declarations rather than talking behind the doors with its allies and, of course, there is this development in, in Berlin as well about feminist foreign policy. Do you think it's it's an effective way of diplomacy that, that Turkey chooses, or what is your take on that?
1: I mean... Uh... On the one hand, you can say that if you have the leverage, uh, you know, you can use it to try to rest some concessions. And if this is an important issue, important enough issue for Ankara, uh, maybe they're willing to really put everything on the line. But I also think that Turkey needs to sort of calibrate and and calculate with the fact that uh, this is likely to make Turkey very isolated, uh, increasingly isolated. There, there used to be a situation where those who were critical, of, critical of, of Turkish domestic politics or foreign policy in, for example, Washington, D.C., they were always met with defenders of Turkey who said, well, yes, uh, there are problems, but we, it, Turkey is an important ally. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't push them into Russia's arms uh, they had supporters in Congress and in the State Department. They've lost much of that support, uh, Ankara has, uh, in, in recent years, because of this quite belligerent type of, of foreign policy and diplomacy, uh, diplomacy via as public conflict, if you will. Uh, so I think it is, it is a type of diplomacy that um, may be useful for domestic purposes, uh, domestic political purposes in Turkey. It, it is a, a type of politics that can give you short-term gains, but it comes at a heavy long-term cost in which Turkey is no ro- longer seen as the sort of important, dependable ally. But increasingly, I think many uh, uh, allies are, are looking for ways to ensure that they're not so dependent on Turkey. I mean, I can... you. You could, we could refer to a, a recent article uh, by two American senators, including Joe Lieberman, the, the independent senator, former Democrat. I mean, they're making the case now again, which we've heard um, before this stat, uh, even that you know maybe we should try to find ways of excluding um, Turkey from NATO. That's quite a, a, a big leap from from uh, how we, you know these discussions y- used to be. Um, Sort of uh, run, so yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of it's a risky, high stakes foreign policy.
0: That, that that's quite true, and uh, and I will ask for your predictions in my last question: Will Turkey be convinced of the two countries' membership? And and actually, how will this crisis impact future relations of Turkey with the uh, NATO and and if a member country, civilian?
1: Well. uh it is, of course, <laughs> terribly risky to try to make predictions, um, and uh, I really don't know how this will end. I wish I could just you know, be very confident and say, you know, wiser minds will prevail, and, and this will all be sorted out. And there's a lot at stake for Sweden, for example. I mean... Sweden now has made the judgment that Sweden, sh- the, you know, Swedish defense requires NATO membership. That means that we don't consider ourselves safe anymore outside of the NATO alliance. So it is in our, our uh, you know, core national interest to, to uh, secure membership, which means that we might be willing to compromise, compromise on some issues. Um, and the same thing goes. I mean, for the NATO alliance, NATO membership and expansion is an important issue. This would be quite significant in terms of geostrategic uh, gains for the alliance. Um, So I'm sure that a lot of, uh, you know, powers in the NATO alliance will uh, both put pressure on and maybe provide some carrots for Turkey to come around and maybe also put pressure on Sweden to make some uh, compromises. The problem, though, is that my, you know, my sense is that this issue of of the PKK and relations with this SSDF is it it is a real concern to Ankara, and it's also kind of kind of an emotional identity-based uh, issue that goes to fears, old fears. Uh, you know, people you talk often talk about the so-called Sevra syndrome, this deep-held fear in Turkey of the country being divided up by separatist uh, forces uh, inside and outside, right? So, so the PKK is not an easy issue to uh, for, for many Turks, um, and uh, I think you know when Erdogan made this the first initial remarks on on after the Friday prayer, he also brought up the case of Ankara. And here I'm stealing Alan Makovsky's uh, excellent uh, point that, you know, the, the Greek history uh, suggests that uh, Ankara does not want to make the mistake of letting a country in that has uh, kind of, you know, does not uh, share uh, national security, uh, per- key perceptions on key national security uh, uh, questions for Turkey and Sweden is such a country. So um That sort of speaks against Turkey really being willing to to budge too much. But there's a similar problematique in Sweden that maybe is hard to see from the outside. But that is that the Social Democratic Party, which is the leading party in government, they have long uh, viewed uh, Sweden's non-aligned status and earlier in earlier periods we were ne- neutral as well uh, this was this is sort of a key component of Swedish self-perception and identity that Sweden is an independent neutral actor if you will um, that is able to stand up for principles in foreign policy such as human rights and democracy and respect for minorities like the Kurds and there's a cr- strong Kurdish diaspora as well Sweden has been a sort of uh, a, a place, a refuge for a lot of Turkish dissidents, uh, people who fled the coup in 1980, and also Kurds who fled the violence uh, between the PKK and the state in uh, in, in the 1990s. And this diaspora um, is politically influential. It's not very large, but there are many politicians who feel strong sympathy toward this broader Kurdish uh, uh, cause. So when the Social Democrats decided to sort of... Uh, you know uh do this very difficult u-turn on Swedish NATO membership one of the be- biggest counter arguments that they heard from within uh, people uh, on the left flank of the party and also from the left party in parliament was that the danger in their view that if we joined NATO we would have to avail ourselves of this opportunity to be this independent force who stands up for minorities like the Kurdish minority, and wouldn't we have to just uh, be quiet about Turkish human rights abuse, right? And the democratic, you know, social democratic leadership uh, tried to calm critics and say, don't worry, this is not going to happen. So even when the prime minister Uh, Announced their decision to join, she also uh, emphasized that Sweden would remain this important sort of moral conscience of the world, if you will, uh, if I'm allowed to be a little bit flippant about it. Uh, But that means also that if the first thing that happens when we turn in our application is that Turkey. Makes demands that precisely go to the heart of this question and and uh, undermine their reassur- reassurances to the left flank that they wouldn't have to make these concessions. That makes it difficult for for the social democratic uh, leadership to make um, significant concessions on this Kurdish issue. Um, so and there are elections also coming up in Sweden uh, in September. In fact, so um, I. I'm a little bit worried that that what Turkey wants, some kind of public concession on the Kurdish issue, is precisely what the Social Democrats cannot give them. Um, so it's going to require some deft diplomatic maneuvering uh, on the on the part of the, the Swedish government, in particular perhaps, um, to make sure that they can offer Turkey something that is still acceptable to them
0: and to their base at all. Paul, that was great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.